How is everybody? Okay. Um, well, we're going to see what happens here. I'm sure you're all going to see what happens. We're all going to see what happens. We're going to see how this goes. We're going to do is, I mean, I talk fast enough. I don't know how much faster I can talk to get you through this. No. But um, how many of you have, this is number five out of six for me. How many of you have journeyed with me for all five? Okay, so I want you to leave your hands up. Everybody look around. These are the stalkers. So you need to look out for me, okay? Because these guys just follow me wherever I go. No. Just joking with you guys. Um, tomorrow is my last one. I will be doing um, Hiddenness of God, Why Isn't God More Obvious? So we'll be talking a little bit about that tomorrow. Today I'm going to be talking to you about why I'm not an atheist. And just so you guys are aware, I belong to a, a group, of uh, apologetics evangelism group called Lighten or Lighten Group. You may have gone to our table over there in the merchandise area, so you're welcome to check it out. We got stickers and podcasts, um, podcasts, uh, little, I don't know, little paper thingies that you could take. So, so, no, we do a podcast called Where We Begin, and you can watch it on YouTube. You can watch it on Spotify or, or iTunes or wherever you want, and it's so called Where We Begin. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Lighten. I think it's Lighten Group. It's Lighten Group. We're going to try Lighten Group. And uh, also, me personally, I'm on Twitter because I'm not cool enough for Instagram. So I'm on Twitter and Facebook, Alicia Wood 88. Number like the numbers 88. It is not the age or the year of my birth. That's so kind. People ask me that. I'm actually older than that. But it is my hockey jersey number. So I was 88 for hockey. So that's why it's 88. So some hockey players, maybe? Oh, nice. Very good. Great. I did high school. I did one year of college, and then I did a whole lot of rec league. So all that to say, really, really quick before I get started, I just want to um, make one point of clarification or something I said yesterday. And the reason why I want to do this is because I've had two groups of people come up to me and ask me for clarification on it. And so I want to take the time. How many of you were here yesterday and talked about sexuality and gender? Okay, so this will hit ho hopefully a good amount of you. Um, and I want to better say something I said yesterday so there's less confusion. Because if I get people coming up to me afterwards asking for clarification, then I didn't do a good job explaining. So, um, as the rain begins to fall on us. So, uh, really quickly, I was asked the question, do you think you can be saved and be gay? You guys remember that question? Okay. So I'm going to re-answer that question and hopefully do a better job of it today than I did yesterday. Okay, so we'll erase that one and I'll do this one today. Um, unless you heard uh, the second time I was asked it, in which I think was better for clarification. So basically, here is the idea. The question is ultimately, can you be a Christian and believe in L and, and support LGBTQ behaviors, whether you are or um, you're someone that you supports it? And... The thing that we need to remember, guys, is this idea of sanctification, okay? When somebody becomes a Christian, we, we, we know that people are encouraged to come as they are, whatever they look like, whatever, they, whatever their sin is, whatever their situation is, okay? But like I read in Romans, um, it says, believe in your heart, Jesus Christ is Lord, okay? It doesn't just say that he existed. Believe that he's Lord. There is an authority to that title, and, and people submit themselves to something that they see as Lord. And I'll talk about that today when we talk about atheism. And I'll talk about the fact that whatever we see as Lord over our life is what we submit ourselves to. And so when you believe Jesus Christ is Lord, you are going to submit your life to him, which is why I mentioned that there's several women who were formerly lesbians, became Christians. That desire did not change. 
What changed for them was that they no longer acted on it because they saw the moral authority of the Bible and of God. But those desires were still for other women. Some people get delivered from that, not everybody does. Most people, it seems like, do not. Okay? So, in other words, technically, are they gay? Yes. Because they are attracted to somebody of the same sex. Okay? Technically, maybe they were bi because they now have married a man. But bi or gay or whatever. Okay? Um, all that to say that the, the idea is that when somebody comes, they may not be at the place yet where they can, let's say they're living with their partner. Okay? They may not be at the place yet where they're like, I just, I, this, is, this is a big thing for me to tear this family apart or, or, or um, leave my partner or whatever. I just, I just need to know more about Jesus. First. I just need to understand. And so there is this time when people come as they are where their focus is on trying to get to know him. And I think sometimes the first thing we say is, okay, we want you to stop doing this and stop doing this and stop doing this and stop doing this. When we, when, and we're almost making salvation about their works. Like you got to do all these things now that you're saying like God, God, God needs you to do all these things. And it's like, well, first let's just get to know him. And let's allow the Holy Spirit to work in everybody, because the Holy Spirit is way better at conviction than any of us are, work in us to then have a lifestyle that follows him, where we are submitting ourselves to him as Lord. And my, my point is that sometimes that happens in the very beginning, and sometimes that takes time. And so that's why, when I say, can somebody be gay and be a Christian? I would say yes, because I'm recognizing that there is a period of time for many people where they just aren't at that point where they can surrender that to God. Now, I do think that someone who becomes a Christian is always looking to be more and more like Christ. That is our goal is to live more and more like him. So if you are still caught up in the same sins year after year and you have no heart of repentance, you have no heart of grief, then I'm really going to question what you really believe. Because even someone who is sinning should have this idea of, of repentance, crawling back to the feet of Jesus and say, forgive me again, forgive me again. Even if they fall back into it, they're still recognizing, I got to get this right. This is not who I want to be, but they're not overcoming it yet. And I think that's different than somebody who is um, uh, just coming and saying, I don't really care that I'm, I'm, I'm living with this person I'm not supposed to be, or I don't really care about this and I'm just going to do what I want. That's a much different heart condition. And so the, so the point I'm trying to make is let's give time for sanctification. And I don't, and the, God works that rate in different people. So quick story that I shared, I think with the second time I was asked this question yesterday, um, was that there was a story of this woman who was trans. I think it was male to female trans and became a Christian and was coming to church. And the people of the church were mad that she was still dressed like a woman. And other people were like, guys, She's coming to church, and she actually wants to learn about Jesus. Like, can we just focus on that for a second instead of just trying to change her clothes right now? She's saying she's in Jesus. Yes, she's so, she's so um, the way she is. Are we going to say that she's not a Christian? I don't know if I would say that at that point. Right now, she's trying to understand more about who he is, and as the Lord draws her closer and closer, he's going to have her submit more and more things to her through what he's been teaching her and what he's showing her of who he, who he is in her life and who she is. And so that's why I want to give this, give, give, allow us, like, maybe just mentally be able to give people the time to allow the Lord to work. And that's kind of where I would say that I think that you can be uh, gay and Christian. Very different than those who say, hey, I think there's nothing wrong with this. I'm going to do what I want. Yeah, you're, yeah, you know, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And they go off and do what they want. What they want. You can tell that's a much different heart condition and a much different heart place. 
And I was telling, um, telling some people earlier what I find as I listen to more and more people who are supporters of gay marriage but would call themselves Christian is they tend to not just be liberal in their views on sexuality. They tend to be liberal in their views of Jesus. For example, what I'll hear from them is, well, Jesus isn't really the only way. Or I'll hear them say, well, Jesus, or God really wouldn't send people to hell. So in other words, what I hear are these other areas that they've become liberal in. And so that also plays a part in, in helping to realize, do you really believe this message? Because you clearly don't believe in who Jesus is because you don't think he's the way, the truth, and the life. And so some of these other things are probably greater indicators of that particular group is not going to necessarily be someone who is truly seeking after God and willing to submit things as time goes on. Does that make sense to people? Okay. I want to just, I didn't do it well, do a good job of it yesterday, but hopefully I did a better job of it then. We're going to talk about atheism. Really quickly, um, atheism, for those of you who aren't sure, is someone, and this is going to get really tricky, is someone who says that they lack a belief in God. It is, and the reason why I use that, that verbiage is because there are people who, who have a problem with the definition of atheism being, I do not believe. Um, I believe there is no God. Okay, so, so you're going to find a lot of atheists today will be hesitant to use the phrasing, I believe there is no God. Why? Because the minute you say, I believe there is no God, is the minute you have to provide evidence. A statement, you've made a claim. I believe this. And the minute you say, I believe this, you then have to provide evidence for it. But if you say, oh, I just don't believe what you're saying about Christianity, you don't have to provide evidence because you're just saying, I just don't believe you versus I don't believe you're God. It's a different way of phrasing things. And so an atheist is someone who says, look, I just don't see evidence for this, or I see there's problems within your, within your Bible or with the character of your God, and so I'm just not going to accept what you have to say to me. And what I want to do today is talk a little bit about the fact that reasons why I'm not an atheist actually have to do oftentimes with conversations that I've had with atheists as to how their atheism has failed them. Areas in which atheism hasn't worked. And so I want to look at things that are problematic for anybody who says that they want to be an atheist, but oftentimes they don't necessarily realize. This is not an attack on an atheist as an individual. This is an attack on atheism, the worldview or the belief. And I use the term belief loosely, okay? So that's what this is. I'm not attacking individuals. I'm attacking, criticizing the athe atheism itself. Let me read you something by a gentleman named David Foster Wallace. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of David Foster Wallace. He was a brilliant writer. Um, and he was a professor at a university. And several years ago, he was asked to uh, speak at Kenyon College in, um, I can't remember where that is. But anyways, he was asked to speak in Kenyon College. And he went to speak there. And while he was there, um, or he gave the, the commencement speech at the college. And so I want to read you a little bit of what he said in this commencement speech. Most commencement graduation speeches are kind of like, oh, my goodness, let me get on my phone. It's going to be boring, right? But what he didn't do was do the, do the typical, oh, you're going to be great. The world is going to just open up for you. You can do whatever you want. He didn't do any of that because that's not reality, guys. You cannot do whatever you want. You cannot be whoever you want. No matter how hard I try, I'm never going to be able to be a center in the NFL. I'm just not. I'm never going to be able to play professional NBA basketball, okay? I cannot be anything. I cannot do anything. It's kind of a, 
an encouraging thing we say to our young people, but isn't exactly true. So he didn't even go down that route. He basically said this. He said, look, guys, you're not going to graduate college, and you're going to have the ability to go to work and decide for yourself how your life is going to look, what you're going to get annoyed at and irritated at, what you're going to allow to bother you. And so he went to, or he talks about how you can get out of work and you can go to the store and then maybe it's a really rainy day and you don't have dinner mates, you're getting your stuff and you got to drag your groceries into the rain and you're tired and you're exhausted. And you have to choose for yourself how you're going to respond to these things in life because life is not always going to be as easy as you might think it is. So let me read you what he also said to the students. Keep in mind, this is not a man who was a Christian. This is a man who's a professor, struggled with, I think, alcoholism and drugs and that kind of stuff. Um, but this is what he says. He said, here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, is some infrangible set of ethical principles. It's pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. So if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally bury you. The trick is keeping the truth of reality up in front of daily consciousness. If you worship power, you're going to feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He says, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they are unconscious. In other words, he's saying, the worst thing about these things is we don't realize that we're worshiping them. Worship happens unconsciously for many people. He said, they're, the kind, they're default settings, the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in, of worship in ways that have yielded extraordinarily wealth, extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom that it gives us to be lords of our only tiny skull-sized kingdom alone at the center of all creation. In other words, what he's saying here, guys, is look, we all worship something. Money, fame, beauty, power, intellect. The point is we may not think that we worship something, but we all do. Which is one of the reasons I actually don't, I would agree with him that there is no such thing as atheism. I think we all worship something. So when we say worship, essentially what worship means is something that you pay homage to, something that you see as higher than you, that you submit yourself to. Okay? So you worship something you see as greater than you, and you submit yourself to its authority. So that could be your intellect, that could be a person, that could be a religion, it could be whatever. It could be yourself. And you submit yourself to it. And as a result, you do whatever it, whatever it does, which is why there's almost a new religion that's come up now called scientism. Has any, any of you heard of scientism? Okay, I see a few hands. Scientism essentially says that what science can tell us is what we know. 
I listen to science. I follow science. In other words, we've replaced a religion and a god of religion with science. Science becomes a source of knowledge. And this is what happens very often within the atheistic worldview or the atheistic ideas and concepts of the world is that they look at science as the one that will give us all the answers. So all we've done is replace an all-knowing God with an all-knowing science, and we realize that all we're doing is changing who we worship, and we still worship somebody. Does that make sense? We have just submitted ourselves to another knowledge source. We say, I don't like this God. I'm not submitting to him. I don't like his rules. So I'm going to submit to the science thing because it seems to give me more freedoms. And so you see actually within atheism a worship of science. In other words, I don't think there really is such a thing as atheism. I think we are all naturally inclined to worship something. The question is not whether or not do we worship. The question is which God is ours. Second reason why I'm not an atheist is because of this idea of morality. Within, within um, atheism, you have to come up with an idea of how do we live? How do we value people? How do we treat people? How do we see people, talk to people, and engage with people? The problem is philosophers have come up with all different kind of ideas, but not, aren't able to really ground themselves in something. So some people will say, well, we can determine morality. Because once again, if you get rid of God who gives morality, then you've got to come up with some kind of moral system. So we say, okay, I'm gonna, I, I need to find a way to live, so I'm going to go to this philosopher who says maybe we need to do what is good for the greatest number of people, kind of a utilitarian kind of mindset. Do what's good for the greatest number of people. Guys, there's massive problems with that idea. Number one, we can think making a decision today is good for the greatest number of people, but the only way we can know for sure is when we're looking 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road and can look back and see if it was the right decision. So we really don't even know what the, what the greatest good is for the greatest number of people because even though it may seem good now, we could look at it in the future coming back and realize, oh, this, is a bad, this was a bad decision. And we change things. So now with that kind of idea, we don't even have a solid form of morality. Classic example, and I'm not speaking for or against marijuana here. I'm using it as an example talking to some of the people yesterday. So I was a criminal justice major, right? We locked people up for weed, for marijuana, for years. We took fathers away from their children, mothers away from their families, and we locked people up. We thought that was the right thing. This is good for the greatest number of people. And then all of a sudden, a couple years ago, things changed. And now we're selling it in stores. What do we say to those people that we have locked up, that we've ruined families, I'm not speaking for or against it, but I'm saying this is what happens when morality changes. We look back and we've done all these consequences. We've hurt all these people and we have no way of getting it back. We are not very good guys at coming up with accurate morality on our own. We just are not. Second thing is you could say, well, what about this idea of, um, or another problem I should say with doing the, uh, seeing what's the greatest number of good for the greatest number of people is we could say, well, you know what's good for the greatest number of people? is if we, we bring back slavery. We enslave a small number of people, and that helps a larger group of people be able to spend more time with their families, be more productive in their workforce, make more money. So the, for the greatest number of people, what is good is to bring back slavery because we're only enslaving a small number for the good of the greater. 
And now we look back, and when we had slavery in this country, and we're like, oh, that was catastrophic. So these alter- some of these alternative ways, I'll, I'll, another thing I hear um, is that, well, you do what's good for you, and I'll do what's good for me. That makes no sense. Because if I think what's good for me is to wake up every morning and walk over to your bedside while you're asleep and just tap you on the head with a spoon until you wake up, because that's what's good for me, that's what makes me feel good, well, you're going to have a problem with it. But you can't have a problem with it if you're telling me I should do what's good for me and you should do what's good for you. I am doing what's good for me, but now you have a problem with it. But you can't tell me not to do it. Because you already told me to do what's good for me. So who's going to stop me? Do you see how, how, how messy this gets, guys? When we try and come up with morality on our own, we do not possess the ability. Let's go back to the Down syndrome. If anybody heard me on the main stage a couple nights ago, I talked about the Down syndrome statistics. For those of you who are not there, here's what you need to know. They are happier than people without Down syndrome overwhelmingly. And Down syndrome people, 96% of them like how they look. They get along with their brothers and sisters. Their families are happy to be alive. These are not polls from the American population because the numbers would be nowhere near as high. And so what we have said over the last several years is people with Down syndrome are not going to have this great quality of life. They're going to be such a burden on their families. It's not fair to bring them into this world if they can't be at this particular level of intellect. So we're going to abort them. And the overwhelming majority of people with Down syndrome have been aborted in the last several years of, of abortion in this country and other places. And now the citizens kind of are coming out saying that they were happier than us. So essentially what, we, what, you, what I'm being told, so essentially as I'm thinking this through is I'm thinking, so basically we aborted the happier people and left the miserable people, people here where we know our mental health statistics are rising, anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts. That's what's rising with the people that are left. We don't get it right, guys, when we put morality in our hands. We mess things up. And so for me, if I'm going to be an atheist, I need to know that the decisions I'm making morally are actually correct, are actually right. And atheism does not give me a framework because it does not give me any solid way to understand that what the decision I'm making today is the right decision. And now I may have to go back years later and say, oops, we aborted the happy ones. No such thing as atheism, morality. Another point I want to raise as to why I find atheism to be a faulty belief system is this idea that we can... This accusation, I guess you could say, that we, the reason why there's so many bad things in the world is because of, the, is because of religion. The idea that religious people do so many bad things and they're the problems and cause of a whole vast number of stuff. So atrocities in the name of religion is how I commonly hear it called. And I'm going to challenge that because I actually think that people don't know what atheism has done. So I'm just going to tell you all. Talk to you, give you some statistics about what actually has happened in the name of atheism in this country. Give me one second. It's hard to hold the microphone and switch pages and use clips from the wind. It's just a lot going on here. Um, All right. So let me read you some of the things that have come about 
in the name of atheism. First World War, 1914 to 1918, led to 15 million deaths. The Russian Civil War, 1917 to 1922, led to 9 million deaths. Soviet Union under Stalin's regime, 1924 to 1953, led to 20 million deaths. Keep in mind, I'm just giving you the 20th and 21st centuries. That's all I'm giving you right now. People's Republic of China under Mao Zedong's regime, 1949 to 1979, resulted in 40 million deaths. The Congo Free State from 1886 to 1908 resulted in 8 million deaths. China, 1917 to 1928, resulted in 800,000 deaths. China Nationalist Era, 1928 to 1337, 3.1 million deaths. Are you getting the point? Okay, I'm going to keep going. Korean War, 1950 to 1953, 2.8 million deaths. The Second Indochina War, 1960 to 1975, 3.5 million deaths. Algeria, 537,000 from 1954 to 62. Sudan, 1955 to 1972, 500,000 deaths. And it keeps going. I think you get the point. None of these atrocities were religious-based. We're done in the name of religion. The reality is, guys, which are, by the way, Christians have royally messed this up as well. We're really good at messing things up. We have gotten this wrong. We've done a lot through colonialism. I remember I was speaking with a young lady in, uh, in Massachusetts who, from Indian descent, and she would not have anything to do with Christianity because of, of the colonialism from Britain in her country. You know when you go to India and you go to southern part of India, you have what's called Anglo-Indians where their first and only language is English. In India, a country where they speak multiple languages, Hindi and Telugu and Tamil and all these things, all the people in this area know is English. And so she doesn't even want to hear anything about Christianity because of what it's done to her country. And they're not, like, they look like Indians. Like, they're not like, oh, these are just, like, white British people. That's not true. And so what you see essentially is people feeling like religions have um, done great atrocities in the name of religion to, to boost their credibility. But at the same time, they ignore what has been done in the name of atheism. But these things happen because within atheism, guys, there's no intrinsic value to any one of you. And I talked a bit about this the other night, Wednesday night, right? There is nothing that makes you special, right? We are, we are the products of random evolutionary, a random evolutionary process. So we're really lucky that it turned out this way because it could have turned out different. Um, you're just a, 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 an enclosure for your DNA. You're the remnants of stardust. And science tells us the universe is expanding. And so at some point... It's going to expand so much that it's not going to be able to hold itself together and it's all going to collapse and we're going to be eradicated anyways. So there's no value in us. It doesn't matter. So honestly, it doesn't matter if you find the cure for cancer because we're all going to die anyways. It doesn't matter if you find the cure for AIDS or the cure for COVID. We're all going to die anyways because the universe is going to be destroyed at some point anyways. It doesn't matter if you find the potion to live forever. You cannot change the expansion of the universe. So not only do we not have value, but our life also loses its meaning. 
ultimately what you do has no bigger meaning. This ship is sinking. And we think, oh, let's find this cure. Let's do this. It's like painting a boat that is sinking. Let me stop and paint this, this door frame I've always wanted to paint. Well, it's sinking. It's like, what are you doing? It's sinking. Why are you painting it? But that's essentially what they would say. Essentially what we're doing here in this meaninglessness, in the meaninglessness of this world, we are trying to make all these good things happen that ultimately don't matter because it is going to be eliminated. So atheism leaves us with a morality that is subjective. It leaves us with um, a, a meaning that is non-existent because it doesn't matter what you do. And it leaves us with an identity that just says, you're just shells for your DNA. And these things are really hard for people to live life. It's really hard, guys, to wake up in the morning, and I'm talking to a whole lot of adults here, to wake up at 5 in the morning, go to work, day after day after day, all for somebody to tell you every day it's meaninglessness. There's a meaninglessness behind it. It means nothing. It's meaningless. People end up depressed. They end up sad. They lose hope. Because they feel like this is so bleak. What is the point of our existence? We live, we suffer, and then we're gone. And this is why you'll find that many atheists don't live as pure atheists. I have met a few. I have one particular person I know that I've met who is a female. She is a vegetarian. Um, cannot wait for the human species to be eradicated so that nature can rebuild itself because we've done so much destruction to nature and the animal world. So she can't wait for people to be gone off this planet so that it can become more beautiful again. She, she chose not to have children because she didn't want to bring more people into this world to destroy this world. And she is grumpy a whole lot of the time. But yeah, she's a friend of mine. And we have good conversations but she's one of the few people that I know that lives true atheism. But that's what it is. Most people can't live like that. And so what they do is they say, you know what? I need to have a meaning. I need to have a reason to get up in the morning. I need to have a reason to conduct the science experiment or to, to, under, um, to undertake this discovery. And so they create a meaning. Well, my meaning means something to me. Well, that's great but it doesn't have an ultimate meaning. Or they, cre they create an identity because the reality is, guys, once you devalue people, you can hurt them. It's how we end up with slavery, right? We tell people that, that, that slaves aren't really human and then you can devalue them. I've been to Auschwitz um, in Poland and when you got to Auschwitz in World War II, your name was basically stripped from you and you were given a tattoo. So if you ever see somebody, who, if anybody's still alive today that has a tattoo on their arm, you know that they were in Auschwitz death camp. And what the Nazis did is they stripped you of your name, the idea strip you of your identity, put a number here, so now you're just a number. It's easy to abuse you. So we have to strip value from people so we can abuse them. And that is a really hard way to live life. So many people are like, I just can't do that. I can't do it. So I think there is something special about humans because we are the smartest of all the species. And so they find ways to borrow from other worldviews because atheism itself is just not livable. So what does Christianity say? Christianity says this. We can know what morality is. Well, number one, 
going back to what I said in the beginning, we all worship something that makes perfect sense in Christianity because we were created to desire to worship a creator. Which is why I find it so fascinating, like I mentioned it on Wednesday night, that when we go to remote places and we go to remote villages, we never meet atheistic tribes in the woods somewhere. They always believe in something. Spirits and nature and trees. In other words, they, they sense something more in creation. As a Christian, I'm like, yeah, because Romans 1 tells us that God's divine quality and his visible qualities in divine Godhead have been clearly seen through what has been made so that men are without excuse. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows the work of its hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no place where their language is not heard, the psalmist tells us. This is why these villages in remote parts of the world serve something, some spirits that they're sensing because there's hints of God. There's a drawing of God in the nature they see around them. So we are created to worship something. We are created to know God. Hence our desire for superheroes and these great people that we see that can save us and help us. Morality, not very easy to, 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 to um to follow an atheism with all its subjectivity. But within Christianity, we know something is good, not just because God says it's good. That's not why we know something is good. It's because God says it or commands it. That's a problem, actually. If we're only doing good things because God commands it, then that could lead us to question whether or not it's actually good. What do I mean? I'm taking you into a little philosophy for a second. If you ever heard of Euthyphro's Dilemma, you'll know what I'm talking about. Basically, this idea that if God commands, let's say, that mercy is good, couldn't, if, it, if, if what makes mercy good is only that God commanded it, then couldn't he, couldn't he have just as easily said, well, hate is good? If he's just telling us, I want to make these things good, I want to make these things bad, then are these things really good or bad? They're just what he chose. He could have easily chosen for these bad things to be good and these good things to be bad. So we don't just do something because God says it's a good thing because that makes us question whether it really is good in of itself, or it's just something that God decided one day, hey, this is, we're gonna, I'm going to call this good. How we know that things are good is because within Christianity, goodness and morality is grounded in the character and the nature of God himself. So in other words, mercy is good because God is merciful. Because in order to be a God, you have to be um, morally perfect. Because God, the idea of God in a general philosophical sense is that it's the highest, most conceivable being. So all knowledgeable, all powerful, morally perfect, all of these things. So it can't be anything greater than it. So whenever God is telling us to do something, we can trust that when he says this is good, it actually is good because it's a reflection of his character. So he's, he's, he's telling us something that is essentially coming out of his character. So mercy is good because God is merciful. Forgiveness is good because God is forgiveness. Love is good because God is love itself. So Christianity grounds morality within the character and nature of God. So I don't have to worry about saying to somebody, oops, I shouldn't have put you in prison. That actually wasn't that bad. Or I don't have to say, hey, whatever's good for the greatest number of people, even though I can't tell the future and I might get it wrong, but I'm going to hope I get it right. I don't have to do any of that. Because I can trust his moral character. Even if I don't understand it, I can trust it because it's coming out of a morally perfect being. And finally, identity. 
We know that we are valuable as people. Christianity teaches that we are valuable because the value of anything is tied up with who made it. If I, um, let's say I showed you a, a piece of artwork, um, and I didn't tell you anything about um, the author, and it was this, a white piece of paper with a bunch of scribbles on it. And I said, I wanted $500 for this picture, and you're like, what? No way. Anybody, my cat could scribble like that. And then I say, well, let me tell you about this picture. Several years ago in Sudan, a young girl was playing when she stepped on a mine. And she, or she tripped and fell and landed on a mine and lost her arm. And this is the first picture she's been able to draw with her prosthetic arm. Would you then be willing to pay $500 for it? In other words, when you know the story of the creator behind it, not only does it change the value of the creation, but you also find it beautiful. And all of a sudden, that picture of scribbles takes on new meaning for you. Nothing has changed with it. You now just know what got it here. And that changes how you view it. What Christianity offers us is an identity and a value and a beauty that is not rest in the hands of men. It doesn't rest in the hands of how many likes you get on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram. How many people think that your new makeup job or your new nails or whatever it is, your new outfit was great. Your value doesn't come from that. It's never rested in the hands of men in the first place. So these are reasons why I am not an atheist. These are reasons that atheism has failed atheists themselves, and they're reasons why I don't see a reason to be an atheist. So I could say, look, I'm, even if I find fault with Christianity tomorrow and say I don't believe this anymore, atheism is not where I would land. That would be, that would be one of the worst places to land. And I will tell you guys, I see a lot of people who say, oh, I don't believe in Christianity anymore, therefore I'm an atheist. And my question is, why do you use atheism as a default position? Christianity can be proven not true. If we find Jesus' body tomorrow and all Christianity is proven not true, that doesn't mean atheism is. It could be Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or a range of other things. Why do we default to atheism? We shouldn't do that. There's no evidence for atheism. And I've asked atheists to give me evidence for atheism, and they have none. Why would we believe in something without evidence? Why would we want something there's no evidence for? Finally, I was in Canada several years ago in a, at an event. And actually, the talk, I think, was on why I'm not an atheist, but it was given by somebody else. And at the end of this, this room was packed full of atheists and Muslims. The Christians were great. They saw that the room was getting full, and they got up, and they got out. They <laughs> gave everybody up. They gave up all their seats. And it was a big lecture hall full of atheists and, and Muslims. And, you know, they said, um, a long Q&A, it was a great Q&A, and this one gentleman stood up from France. And, and he was an atheist. And in front of all these other atheists, he asked this question to the Christian speaker. He said, here's the thing that you Christians don't understand about us atheists. See, you guys think that we are atheists because we believe that this is true. Some of us are atheists because we don't know what else is. One of the things that we need to ask ourselves is what is actually true. We don't want to default on our belief system, even Christianity, because that's what somebody tells us to believe in. 
you want to know that it's actually true because the reality is, guys, whether or not I took a shower this morning has very minimal effects on you guys. But whether or not there's a God has great drastic implications for your life. Look into this question. There's only two possibilities. Either there's a God or gods, or there's not. That's it. God or gods or not. There's only two options here. And you need to figure out which one is actually right. Because implications for your life are monumental. I've given you some time to ask some questions, unlike I did yesterday because we did sexuality and gender, and that's just a really long one. Um, so I'd love to take some questions from you guys, and I will do my best to answer them. They can be on something that I said, something I didn't say, something I said yesterday, something I said a couple days ago, something I haven't said at all. It's open to you. So go ahead, and if you have any questions, I'd be happy to take them. Yes? I'm just going to repeat so they can hear. So earlier I mentioned... We're all created with an, with an inner desire to worship something higher than us. So, essentially, I might be taking this the wrong way, but you're saying that we are created, at least one of our purposes is to be God's hype people. Okay, so is one of our purposes to be God's hype people. To just make him feel better about mm. himself. To make him feel better about himself. Feels a little weird. Feels a little weird. Why? 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 Why are we created like that? Great question, my friend. How old are you? 14, I love it. 14-year-olds who think, my kind of people. Great, great question. So essentially, we are, we, if we're created to worship God, why are we created then to make him feel good? I get you. I will tell you this, my friend, that's a stellar question. And I would say, I don't think we are created to make God feel good. And this is why. If God needs us in order to feel good, that means that God isn't sufficient in and of himself. Okay? That he's lacking something. If he can't feel good, without us, or if we make him feel good, then it poses the question is, can God actually be fully complete without us? So God doesn't create us so that we can worship him to make him feel good. He creates us so that we can know him and experience the best thing that ever could be. Okay? So our natural desire for worship is just my way of describing the fact that we are created as beings who are looking for something more. This desire that there's something bigger outside of us. But I agree with you. It would seem awfully, like, weird was a good word that you used. I would say maybe even like, I don't know, like maniacal a little bit or narcissistic that you need me to make you feel good. I agree with you. That's, that's problematic. And so that's why I would say I think, the, I think a, the way Christianity would see it or understand it is that God creates us to bring us into a, something beautiful, which is him that's already existing. So we're created for our benefit, and, and our benefit is tied up in experiencing and knowing him. Does that make more sense? Great question. Thank you for asking that. Yes, please. Multi-part questions. Here we go. Am I familiar with Pascal's wager? I am. Yes. Okay. So um, basically, what was your when you talk with atheists? Um, and by the way, I hope we all have friends who are not Christians. I really encourage you to make sure your friends are not Christians. Please don't. If you're a Christian in this area, please don't just live only with Christian friends. 
Okay, nobody's ever going to know how cool Christians can be if they don't get to meet you. Otherwise, their pictures of Christianity are all the people they see on TV and in film, and it's just nonsense. And they don't like Christians because of what they see in the political world and all this kind of stuff. Let them meet you if you're a Christian here, and they can see that you're normal and you're nice and you just like people. I know that sounds crazy, but that would go a really long way with people right now because they just think that Christians are hateful and want to force everybody to follow their rules. That's all they think Christians want to do. But somebody who will love them and be kind to them as they are, that's a new thing for them, okay? So he was saying, you, you know, if atheists, yes, I, I try to make sure I'm around people who do not always think like me. I like that. Um, and so I went, have they raised this idea of Pascal's wager? What do they say? How does that conversation go? How many of you are familiar with Pascal's wager? And you heard of this? Okay, so we're going to talk about Pascal's wager. i got a few hands. Blaise Pascal was a mathematician, um, and I guess you could say a theologian as well. Uh, I don't know his theological training. I don't remember that. But um, if you've ever, um, did he do Pythagorean's theorem? I can't remember if he's the one who came up with Pythagorean. No, that would be Pythagoras. He came up with one of our mathematical concepts that we use, and I can't remember which one it is right now. Regardless, Pascal was a great mathematician, but he wrote this really cool book called Pense. And I'm, that he's French, so I'm not saying it very well, but there we are. Um, Ponce, maybe, or something. But he, um, in this, he wrote a bunch of different, like, it actually wasn't a book that he wrote. It's actually a compilation of different notes, I think, that he had written. And after he died, they compiled it together, I think is how it came about. But essentially, he says this. So hang with me. We're going to do a little philosophy again here. Um, he essentially says this. He, he gives four different possibilities. And I'm going to try and do this off the top of my head. If there's a God, and you believe in this God, and you die, you have had infinite good. And if you've gained infinite gain, and that's wonderful for you. Life may have had a little bit of inconvenience because you were believing this God, but nothing too, too crazy because you got infinite gain, so it's worth it. The second option he proposes is if you believe in there's a God and it turns out there isn't, well, now there's, it's kind of like a null thing. Like it didn't really matter. Maybe you were a little uncomfortable in life because you didn't get to do everything you wanted to do, but it doesn't matter because there's no God and you're dead anyways. The third thing he says, if you, if you don't believe there's a God and there isn't a God, well, it doesn't really matter because it didn't, it's like there's no point. Like, I mean, you're, you didn't believe there was one and you're dead anyways, no big deal. But the fourth one he postulates is if there is, if you believe there is no God and it turns out there is, now you have infinite loss. If you lived as if there was no God, and it turns out there is, now you have infinite loss. So like the first one was, if you live as if there is a God, and it turns out there is, you got infinite gain. If you live as if there is no God, and it turns out there is, you got infinite loss. But if it turns out there's no God anyways, then you really don't lose out if you believed or didn't believe. So he essentially says, look, guys, the risks are too great here. So why don't you just live as if there is a God? Because... That way you can make sure if there is, you got infinite gain. And if you're wrong and there is no God, no big deal. It didn't matter anyways. So he, it's like call his wager. Like which one of these options, isn't it a better gamble to just say live as, live as if there is a God in case there is? And so a lot of people kind of say, well, you know, is that's what a lot of people do is they just hope that they're, they just think maybe there is a God or these kind of things so that they can have infinite gain. I actually don't use Pascal's wager when I talk with people. Mostly because I don't think Pascal intended for it to be, um, I think it was just kind of, 
using it as a tool to help us think through the long term, like the gravity of, of these kind of decisions and to really give it weight. I don't think he necessarily says believe in Jesus Christ because he was a Christian. I don't think his goal to say believe in Jesus Christ just because it's, it, it, it's, you could run into real trouble if you don't and he's actually real. Um, because his next thing that Pascal goes on to really encourage is he wants people to, to go, therefore, because you have the possibility of infinite gain, why don't you just try going into a church? Why don't you try reading a Bible? Why don't you try these things and see if there's any truth to it? So I think there's actually an encouragement of a second step that because this, this wager is, has such catastrophic gains or losses, why not try for it? and just see if it actually proves true. So no, it's actually not something that I would typically use with somebody. I just don't think it's really helpful. It's just not really the angle that I go at. And I don't want people to kind of have that approach to God that let me just kind of gamble with it and say, yeah, okay, this looks like it's true and kind of take that approach. So I don't really take that angle. But I know some people, I know it, come, it used to come up. It doesn't come up as often, but I know some people would, some atheists would raise that with me previously. Has that been your experience? It's a neutral angle. You're not trying to assert God upon them. Yes. It's a, it's a discussion from a statistical standpoint that somebody might be familiar with. Yes, exactly. I agree. Yeah, I agree, friend. I think that's, that's great. It's, I mean, it, it makes sense. I think, I think it, it, if anything, it should just let us know this decision is a big deal. And if you walk away from Pastor Wade, you're thinking, yeah, that's a good point. Maybe I should consider it. Good enough for me. Let's talk about Jesus. Let me give you some evidence for the Bible. Let's explore church, things like that. Okay. Somebody else. Yes. I see you back here. Hi. You're some. Thank you. Okay, we talk about native populations where everybody worships something. Sometimes you hear the argument. Sometimes you hear the argument. That the reason is is because none of us want to accept that this could be it. The reason is none of us want to accept that this could be it, okay? What's your thoughts on that? What are my thoughts on that? Um I I mean I think that's valid because it still is showing me that there's that humans wish there was something more. I think it's it's a different it's coming at maybe from a back angle. But I think there's some validity to it. I mean, I think it's going back to the meaninglessness part. So maybe it isn't. So we, I, I, mean, I, I like this idea of thinking, well, maybe they're looking for some kind of spirit thing because um, they, want their, they want life to be bigger than what they see, they think it is. And I'm like, yeah, so we're looking for meaning and significance. We express loss over the people that have passed it for us, and we hope for a connection with them in the future. To me, these are still, I can still see biblical parallels with it. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's an interesting way to look at it. And I would say, look, I haven't seen studies on this. I just have never heard. I've never heard of, of, of missionaries going to places and finding remote tribes that are atheistic. Maybe you have, and I'm totally open to hearing it. Um, but there's always some sense in which there's some sort of spiritualism. And so I think atheism is much more of a, of a learned belief um, as opposed to a default belief. So, yeah, maybe it is that they feel like there isn't enough here. And I think all of that is part of what we would call this general revelation, which I would talk more about yesterday. This general revelation of God where God kind of gives us general picture of who he is so that we begin to go and seek 
him and search for him. So I think that would, I think that could work as well. Thank you for your thoughts on that. I saw a hand over here. Yeah. What do I think about the Holocaust? In what way, my friend? Like what, what, what Hitler did to the Jews and what do I think about that? Um, so what's interesting is I went to Hungary first before I went to Poland. And I went to Hungary and I went to like the World War II uh, Jewish Museum in Hungary because the Hungarian Jews were obviously um, taken off to death camps as well. And then I went off, took the train, the overnight train to Poland. And that was interesting as well because I was quite possibly on the same train tracks the Jews took from Hungary to Poland, which was really interesting. What do I think about Hitler? Is I think Hitler, um, Hitler and what Hitler did is I think that is a prime example of what is actually buried within many of us who think that we become God. When we put ourselves in the position where we are the arbitrators of right and wrong, that we determine people's lives and value, I think that we see the outcomes of Mao Zedong, Stalin, Hitler, and the like, that whole crew. It is people who say, I don't believe in this God and I will be God myself. And so I think that it should scare us a bit because I don't think Hitler is an anomaly in the sense of, obviously he's not, we've had many other horrible dictators, Idi Amin, we've had all these horrible dictators that put themselves in these positions to cause destruction um, and, and put themselves in a position where they believe that they have the power to do so. I will tell you from a criminal justice background, and I'll keep this as uh, friendly as possible, when you consider people and look at the prison population of people who have, who have committed, let's say, the same crime multiple times, you will find a pattern. And one of, well, many patterns, but one of the patterns you will find is that most of the time, they will see the person that they are harming as an object and not as a human. And they've turned them into an object. And the simple reason is, like I talked about earlier, is the minute you turn them into object, they don't feel bad about hurting them, right? So you think about getting on the bed and the kid's jumping on the bed and, you know, mom wants them to get off the bed so they don't break the bed and cost her money, right? But the kid doesn't see any harm in jumping on the bed. But he would, th that kid would think differently about jumping on their brother and sister. Now, they may do it, but not in the same way, frequency, or harshness that they would on the bed because there's a difference with the person. So the minute you objectify a person and turn them into something different, it makes it really easy for us to harm them. And I think we don't, that's why I say I don't think he's an anomaly. I think we see this within the criminal population as well on a much lesser scale where they objectify people and then can harm them. Um, and so I just, I think that, I think that Hitler is an example of what happens when we take God out of the equation and put ourselves in his place. And we are just not very good at it at all. I know the time is up, um, so I will stay and answer a few more questions for people. The time is now, oh, 2.59. I'm a minute early. If any of you have been at any other stuff, guys, you know that is not me. I think I got left here yesterday around 5.15 after we started at 2 o'clock. So the fact that I finished a minute early is just life-changing. Um, so anyways, if, if you guys want to stay, you're welcome to stay. I don't answer more questions. If you have to go, just know that you can go, but I don't want you to feel like you're bound up. Okay, thank you for coming. Hopefully I'll see you tomorrow for those who are here. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Question about morality. Uh, why are things good, like mercy 
Yes. Why are these things? Okay. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay, great, great, great. Oh, I like this. This was like this is like philosophy class, guys. Okay, so he's asking me, why are mercy and patience and love and all things good just because they come from God? Why can't they be good on their own? Oh, this is so good. Okay. So that was and I briefly touched on this. I didn't go into the full explanation because I didn't want to bore you. But we're gonna but it's his fault. If I bore you, it's his fault. So here we go. Um so uh, this, this is an old philosophical question from thousands of years ago. Um, it's called Euthyphro's Dilemma. And essentially, it's a conversation between Socrates and a guy named Euthyphro. And let me tell you a little bit more about this story. Um, Euthyphro was on his way to court because his father had committed a murder, and he was going to testify against his father. And Socrates is like, dude, really? You're going to testify against your own father? But Euthyphro really felt like his father was wrong in this situation. So they start this whole long discussion about what is good and what is bad. And um, the way they kind of settle it is that there's two possibilities here. Either we do good things because the gods tell us to do good things. Or we do good things because there are certain things that are good. And the gods are just informing us of what those good things are. So let me explain this again. Either we do good things because the gods tell us these are good things and so you're supposed to do them. Or we do good things because there are good and bad things that exist and the gods are just helping us know what those good and bad things are. Okay? So in one situation, the good, and, the good deeds and bad deeds have a connection with God. A loose one, but a connection. In, this, in the second situation, the good deeds and bad deeds exist outside of God God has the ability to see those good and bad things and tells us what they are because we can't figure them out. So it's almost like a second element. So you got God, the good and bad deeds, and us. Here you have us and, some, and a relationship between, the God, between God and the good and bad deeds. Here is the problem with both of those. So Euthyphro and Socrates are going back and forth. Here's the problem with both of those. The problem with the first one is kind of what I was talking about earlier. If God is just telling us what is good and bad, then God could just have easily, if, if that's all he's doing, is just telling us, do this because I say it, do this because I say it, do this because I say it, then he could have easily have chosen certain things to be good, certain things to be bad, and he could change that later on. Or maybe he just randomly chose that love is good and peace is good and randomly chose that hate is bad. Like what reason do we have to believe that the things that he chose that are good are really good if all we're doing is just listening to what he told us, Okay. Second option, and I know this is a bit heady, but hang with me. I'm doing my best here. The second option is if good and bad deeds exist separate from God and us, and God is just telling us what these good and bad deeds are because we don't have the ability to know them ourselves, then essentially those good, God is subject to those good and bad deeds. So he can't do, they, those good and bad deeds are outside of him, and if he's going to be good, he has to do what those good deeds tell him is good. So God can't be great because he's subject to the certain morality that exists out in the ether. Does that make sense? So either way, you guys hanging with me or did I lose you? Okay, I'm, did I lose you a little bit? Okay, we're hanging? All right. Okay, good job. So, um, so either way, they're like, whether it's option number one, where God is just saying this is good and this is bad, that doesn't let us know that these things are really good or bad because God could have just said this is bad and this is good. He could have just picked whatever he wanted. And, and there's no accountability. And here, the, God is subject to these, to the good things. So either way, they're like, 
Which one is good? And they call it Euthyphro's Dilemma. Because they can't figure out how then do we know what's good is? How can we trust any morality? How can we trust the gods? So what Christianity, Christianity does is say, I get option one. I get option two. I get there's problems with both of them. So here's option three. Christianity introduced option three, which says morality is grounded in the character of God. So that essentially what it does is it means, going back to option one, God can't just pick love and peace and patience as good. He can't just arbitrarily pick them as good. And he can't just arbitrarily say that love, patience are bad. He can't do that. He, he, his very nature requires him to be consistent. So, he, so we know that when he says these things are good because he is a good God, because in order for him to be a God, he has to be morally perfect. Otherwise, he can't be God. So if we know he's morally perfect, then what he tells us is good is morally perfect, is morally good. Versus over here, as the Christian thing, Christian option three says, with this issue, God isn't subject to morality because it's coming out as very character and nature. And so this is why it's called divine command theory. If you guys want to spend any more time in philosophy than you did today in the woods, um, you can look that up. But that's kind of the idea behind it. So that's why it can't just be that God says it or this or that or any of those kind of things because it doesn't allow us to ground morality somewhere. We, so we have to ground morality somewhere so we know that this is, actual, this is the actual right moral code. Did that make sense to you? Yes. I'm speaking with an atheist. The Bible says this is who God is. How can I convince them of God's moral judgments as right? So how can I trust that God's... Say that one more time, sorry. How can... How can we trust that God's character is the right character when it comes to morality? How do I convince an atheist of that? Okay, great. This is why we don't try and change morality before people encounter God. Because it's very thing. Okay? Because people, it's not going to make sense to somebody until they encounter who God is and they actually think this is true. Because by definition, take the Bible out the picture, by definition, the definition of, of a God from a philosophical sense is the highest, most conceivable, powerful being, unknowledgeable, powerful, um, morally perfect, all these things. So as an atheist, they know from a philosophical conception of God, these are the requirements for something to be God. If there's something that's more morally perfect, then that thing is God. Okay, so they're going to understand that in a general sense. That's not specific to religion. That's just more of definition of God. Okay, so essentially, um, because of that, what what my what, what I would so I guess the question is, as a Christian, how do I convince them that the Christian God is this kind of thing? And I would say that I okay. Well, here's one way I would do that. Um. Okay. And I was going to say this the other, on Wednesday night, and I ran out of time. So I didn't get to say it. Um, so you guys get to hear it. To me, what makes God morally perfect, or the way that I, can, I feel confident in the moral perfection of God, actually is not just because I, it says so, but because he's demonstrated it. Okay? He's acted it out. So let me explain this to you. If I was to go around and ask you guys, 
Um, what is the greatest ethic that we can have? Most of you are going to understand and say love, okay? Um, if I would say what is the greatest way to show love, if I have any parents in the room, they're going to say through self-sacrifice. You see that with parents all the time, that they're willing to give their life for their children, okay, through self-sacrifice. So love is the greatest ethic. The greatest way to show love is through self-sacrifice. Okay, that's not really mind-blowing yet. Jesus himself says, no greater love does anybody have than this, and they lay down their life for a friend. Jesus himself acknowledges that the greatest way to show love is through laying down your life, okay? But here's what's interesting, guys. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says this. It says, God demonstrates his love for us, and while we were sinners, meaning while we hated him, didn't do what he wanted, Jesus dies for us. Now, as Christians, we believe that Uh, Jesus is divine. So essentially what's happening is God is showing love for us by giving his life for us. So God is sacrificing his life. Okay, why does that matter? Because if the greatest way to show love is through self-sacrifice, then in Christianity, I have a God who shows love in the greatest possible way. He's demonstrating his moral perfection. So he is dying And sacrificing himself, which is the greatest way to show love, which means if I give my life for this young lady right here, all I'm doing is matching God. I'm not outdoing God. The reason why that matters is because when I look at other religions like Islam, which says that Allah would never sacrifice himself, then I see Muslims sacrificing themselves and doing a greater good than Allah. How can I then trust his moral perfection? If I can do a greater good than him. When I look at Mormonism, Mormons believe that Jesus... Um, is one of many gods, but he is not God himself. He's just the God of this planet. So God the Father does not come and sacrifice himself. So if God the Father doesn't sacrifice himself, how then can I say I can trust his morality? And Jehovah's Witness belief system, they say Jesus is just Michael the archangel. So an angel sacrificed himself for you, but God doesn't sacrifice himself. So once again, we don't have a God who's demonstrating love in the greatest possible way. So I think for me, one of the things that I actually do taught my atheist friends is what makes Christianity unique is that in Christianity, we have God who demonstrates the greatest love, the greatest ethic, and the greatest possible way through self-sacrifice. And you don't have that in any other major worldviews. So if I know that he can do the greatest possible good, that gives me a greater demonstration of his moral perfection. And then helps me to actually have confidence. But I will tell you that, that until you encounter God, a lot of that is just going to be like, well, that's cute. Which is why I don't focus necessarily on, well, okay, I, oh, that's not true. I would let them know that, that this is why I think Christianity is true is because I can say that I think that God in Christianity is morally perfect as one of the things. They may not get that from a belief sense, but they can say, yeah, okay, that makes sense within Christianity. They may not believe it, but they can recognize it makes sense. So I think I would probably go less with the atheist is a, um, how can I convince them of God's moral perfection as opposed to just demonstrating that Christianity has a good lockdown case on it, even though they may not be convinced that that's the actual religion that's right. I just want to present a consistent Christianity. Does that help you any better? Yes, ask one more time. Thank you. So, so you went to the like the special revelation side. So you would have to share that Jesus died on the cross, which we know from scripture. Um, and I was thinking, um, and this isn't me asking a question, I'm just kind of processing, but the gentleman up here was asking about like other religions and like the back door, you're saying they're coming from the back door and finding morality and like animism or something like that, where they believe in other spirits and they're getting religion because we're all religious. And I think of Ecclesiastes three, where God puts 
eternity into man's hearts. Or I think of Romans 1 where his divine attributes are clearly seen and God is seen in nature. Or Acts 17 where God created everybody so that they might reach and find him. So then I think of if I was going to share with an atheist, um, which I do. I have friends, you know, who stand on that side of the fence. Um, I, I guess I'm just trying to process how do I explain that goodness is essentially good and God has to be those things or God is those things therefore goodness exists I don't know if that's the ontological argument where like okay yeah so it is kind of I think it is going more towards the ontological argument which is kind of what I was saying before about God has to be good in order to be from philosophical sense in order to be God so I think it would go to that sense um, what are the specific questions they're asking you you're asking yourself, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mercy is good. Mercy is good. So why is mercy itself a good thing? I see. So one of the words, why is the actual moral ethic a good thing? That's a great question. No, I don't think it's a tailspin. Well, I would say this. Anything that is good has to... Well, now I'm going to go back to what I said before. I guess I would say it's going to be a reflection of a morally good, perfect being. So I guess I do ground it that way. I guess that is where I go. I just go back to grounding it. Anything is good when it's grounded, when it's grounded in, what, in something that is good. And so I guess that probably doesn't answer your question. I guess I have to think about a better way of explaining that. But I like that question. The moral compass that's in us. No, but these are good questions. Let me give it some more thought. I like that. I like that. Yeah, I, I, I do think he's saying your answer satisfying, but he's still thinking it through. I just think that the reality is, is for something to be good, I think the source has to be good. And I think it's coming out of the source. So it's the idea of saying, hey, I can give you soda, but if it's coming out of a dirty pipe, it's not going to taste very good. Even if it was good soda, it's going to taste garbage. But the only way for it to be good is if the source of itself, of that pipe, is good itself too. And so the, 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 the goodness is going to be tied up with where it comes from. But that's probably not a full answer, so maybe I need to think about it further. I like it. Thank you, friend. She's a true atheist. Exactly. Great. But isn't she worshiping something? Good point. Yes, you're right, my friend. Um, she is. You know, like, like nature, science, she does have a science background. She, nature and science are the all in all and herself, really. I think she is a he person where she is her source of, every, of a lot of things. And so I think there is the worship of self in there as well. Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. That's a great question. I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah, probably a, a dual thing of nature, science, and then mostly herself. Yeah, that was good. Anybody else? Yes. And then I see you right here. Can you say the first part again? I missed it. If there's not a lot of evidence for atheism, what do I think about the culture? About atheism being for intellectuals. I know this frustrates me, my friend. Exactly. So let me tell you what he's saying. And I should have said this from the beginning, but I've been doing um, apologetics eight, it'll be nine years soon, which is unbelievable to me. And one of the things that it took me probably several years to grasp and get, 
is that the atheistic community, I know this is going to sound crazy, but it took me several years to get, the atheistic community truly believes that Christians or religious people in general are stupid. They genuinely believe that we're stupid. And the reason is, is because we come to them, we say, yeah, they're, they're like, how do you know it's true? And you're like, yeah, I just believe by faith. And they're like, what? It makes no sense to them. And we present Christianity as a belief system without evidence, which is so fascinating because Jesus gave miracle after miracle after miracle to demonstrate that he was the real Messiah. He was giving evidence to people constantly. And we portray Christianity as a belief system without evidence. And that is so problematic for the atheists. One of the reasons they don't have any respect for this world. And so what they do is they then say, so this is the belief system of the stupid. So therefore, atheism is the belief system of the intellectual, the rational thinker, the logical person. So for me, I was like, great, I hear you. So I was like, okay, then I want to know. Tell me your evidence. You are the belief system of the evidence, of the rational, of the logical. Great, give it to me. And they're like, I don't have to give you evidence. Like, what do you mean you don't have to give me evidence? Well, I'm not saying I believe in anything. I'm just saying I reject your belief. This is why I was getting to what I was getting to in the beginning. It's a whole other discussion called the presumption of atheism. But basically what they're doing is to absolve themselves of giving evidence. They, they change their wording from I believe there is no God to I don't believe there is a God. And while we use that interchangeably in our common day English language, it's two very different things. If you remember your logic proof years, all my teenagers in here who say, and I told your math teachers you'd never use logic proofs, well, they've come to haunt you here in the woods. Okay? There's a difference between P, which is I believe there's a God, and not P, which says I don't believe there's a God. Those are two different statements. And so essentially what the atheist does is they've, and this, you can thank Anthony Flew, who's a philosopher back in the, he's passed away now, I think early, uh, uh, maybe 2015 he passed away or so, maybe t early 2000, I can't remember. But Back in the 70s, um, he was an advocate for changing the definition of atheism to I don't believe there's a God because he wanted to absolve the atheists from having to provide evidence for atheism. And so, they, and so that is the common thing that is said now. Um, it's problematic. I do a whole talk on it. Um, but basically, it's frustrating for me because essentially I'm t I, I am told that I'm stupid because I believe in something without evidence, which isn't true because my whole job is evidence, but whatever. Um, but then I go to these guys. I'm like, okay, well, give me the evidence so I can consider your evidence. And they say they don't have any. And I'm like, I don't understand then how you're the, the belief system. I can't use belief. How you're the, the, the worldview of intellect. So I, here's what I do with, with this kind of argumentation. Um, is I, I, first of all, I point out to them, actually, guys, We've gotten the faith thing wrong, okay? Faith does not just mean you believe something blindly. That is not what faith means. And this blind faith idea has really hurt the reputation of, of Christianity. Think to John chapter 20, right? Jesus appears, and after his resurrection to the disciples, um, and Thomas is not there. Thomas comes later on after Jesus left, and the disciples are like, oh, my goodness, we've seen Jesus. And Thomas is like, no, 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 no. Oh, my hour's up. That's how you know the batteries go. Um, the, the, um, Thomas is like, no, 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 no. I don't believe you. I want to see, see the nail prints in his hands or the scars in his sides, whatever he says there. Jesus comes back, I don't know how many days later, and says to Thomas, look, go ahead and touch me. 
And then he says to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. That Greek word for believe is pistos, which we translate as faith in other aspects of the text. So in other words, what Jesus is saying, here is the evidence, Thomas, stop doubting and have faith. Faith is a response to the evidence that is laid out before you. It is not just, oh, I just believe. That's not what Christianity asks of us. God does not demand uninformed acceptance of him. And so what we see here is that Jesus gives evidence, tells Thomas to have faith. If Christianity is a blind faith, then Jesus got it wrong. And he even says at other parts, he says, believe me, if not for the evidence of the miracles themselves. So all that to say, um, what I do is I first point that out to them, that actually I do have evidence and Christianity has always been about evidence. So that's, that's the first thing that I point out to them. The second thing um, that I do is I like to challenge them on this very thing. You can't convince me that you are the people group of the intellectual and the, ev and the evidential base if you don't have any evidence. And I will tell them that the only people who don't need evidence is not me as a Christian. I do need evidence. You're right. I need it. But the only people who don't need evidence is the agnostic person who says, look, I don't know what's true. Because they haven't landed anywhere. They're saying, maybe there's a God. Maybe there isn't God. I don't know if we'll ever know. That is the only person who does not need evidence is the agnostic. Anybody who leaves the agnostic position and says, I believe in a God or says there is no God has to write evidence. Because my question isn't necessarily what is the evidence for your atheism? My question is why did you leave the world of agnosticism and take this position? If you had stayed here in agnosticism, I would have left you alone. But the minute you leave that and you come to a conclusion, all I'm asking is what made you go from there to here? And so I try and find ways to make them, help them get out of this, this trap that they put themselves in, which is so unhealthy. Don't believe in something without evidence, guys. Don't do it. That's for the believer and for the non-believer. And so that's kind of what I do. I do those two things. I point out that Christianity is a belief of evidence, and I point out why they too need evidence. I'm not asking them for reasons. And what they always give me is, well, well your Bible's corrupted, and, you're, and you're, Jesus is this, and your God is this. I'm like, guys, that's just reasons why you don't like Christianity, but that's not the case for atheism. You can disprove Christianity, but it doesn't mean atheism is true. I want to know why you no longer are in the agnostic world. So those are the two angles I take. Does that help you in that? Okay. Because I don't like to let them get out of that. I'm so tired of that argument. Absolutely. Do I think a lot more people say they're atheists or more agnostic? Yes, I think so. I think being 100% atheist, 100% atheist, like I said, is really miserable. And a lot of people like to be a little bit more fair and say, well, I don't really, I mean, I can't prove for sure. They'll say you can't prove a negative, which is a whole other thing. Um, there are times you can prove a negative. You can prove a negative when it's illogically impossible and things like that. So they'll say, I can't prove there is not something. I'd have to be able to scour the whole world to do that. But you would say, yeah, but if something existed, you'd expect to see hints of it. So I do think a lot of people try to be, like Richard Dawkins, the most popular atheist, would probably call himself an agnostic. He'd call himself like a, a two out of ten. So if 10 is belief in God and 1 is 100% atheist, he'd probably call himself a 2. He gives himself that little bit of wiggle room as well. Um, but most atheists don't think like that. They don't necessarily know that they're really probably... I just think, honestly, I just don't think most atheists think about it. I think they just say, I don't like your God. I don't want his rules. 
I'm just not going to believe. And they don't really make a case for their new position of atheism. That's really what I think it is. They just don't like the other options. So they've come, they feel like atheism is the one that tells me I can do whatever I want. I can love who I want. I can be with who I want. I can act how I want. And so they default to it and don't really think it through. You had your hand up. She has two questions. Okay. She was raised in the Catholic Church. She saw inconsistencies in her teenage years. And she's felt pulled away from what she felt God was because of that. She found her way back. Okay. Okay, when we're talking about agnostics. She's raised her Christian, her children with Christian morality, but So you're saying you don't you you've you've veered away from nor- going to church, yeah, not anymore. okay, yeah. Rahab, because you didn't feel like they were walking the walk, walking the walk that they say that the Bible's talking about. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So how do we protect them from years of church hurt and disappointment? Life. So are you, are you asking how do you help them um, follow Christ, basically in a world that's pulling them right. in many different directions? Right. Yeah. Whether it's in a church or outside of a church. Because a, a little bit of everywhere. Okay, so I think, number one, church community is helpful here. Having people, I mean, I'm assuming these are your lovely kids. This one is adorable. Um, but just like they have, the, you know, having friends and people their ages is a big deal and is helpful, right? So I think that's important. I think it is an all-out war with the world right now. I feel really bad for parents of teenagers. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, and you are in church, which is good. In the rest of the world. Right, outside of, like, removing to remote West Virginia and removing all cell phones and internets, which you don't think is good either, right? How, do we, how in the world do we raise, like... Oh, the rest of the, I love West Virginia. It's my favorite state. Um, it's beautiful. Um, right? How do, you, how do you do it in this, in this world? I, you know, I'm not a parent, so I can only guess. But I, I can tell you I watch what, what, what parents are going through, and it just breaks my heart. It makes me sick because I, oftentimes I'm dealing with the children who have walked away. Right? A lot of times people come to me, it's because the child has walked away, and the parents are pleading with me to help their kid. Um, and so I, I, do, I just think it's difficult. Um, I guess I would say... For, for you guys, for children here, let me, let me just speak to you instead of speaking to parents. Let me say to you, there's a lot of other alternatives out there than Christianity. It is not the only option on the table. There's many other cards in the deck of cards. What you need to ask yourself is not what makes you feel good or what you wish was true. 
You need to say what actually is. And you follow whatever actually is true. And I think any parent, what they need to do is help them on that journey of exploration of what is true. My question, it's like, um, it's the one I think I said it the other day. Like, if we were to leave Christianity, I don't know where else I would go. Because I haven't found another belief system or worldview that is as grounded and as solid and as backed up by evidence as Christianity is. So I don't know what I would go to. And I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we willing to follow the truth wherever it takes us? Because it may take us to a place that we didn't necessarily wish we, we wanted. But if it's true and if it really is a good God, then it's actually going to end up being good in the end. And I think that there is an element in which our culture is saying so many things. Guys, our culture is so utterly confused right now. They don't know up from down, left from right, who they are, nothing. So clearly, this culture is not going to be helpful to me because I'm not going to ask a confused person to help me be less confused. So I wouldn't go to the culture because they are already confused. Is there someone, is there a source of clarity that can bring calmness and peace to the confusion that's in my mind? And so I think what I would do as parents is I would, right now, this culture, the way that kids are being, are looking for is they are looking for what makes them feel good and they are looking for evidence. You can at least provide the evidence part, show them some of the facts behind Christianity, some of the credibility of the Bible itself. Um, some of the things I mentioned the other day, right, that Jesus lived, he died, he had followers, he was a good man, it was Pontius Pilate who crucified him, and something happened three days later. I don't need the Bible for any of those facts. That's all written down in history, Hist other historical documentation, okay? Jesus' existence isn't questionable. All that's questionable is who was he? And we need to ask ourselves who we think he is and be willing to go on that journey. And I think parents have to walk a very different journey than what we even we were raised with. I was probably raised more of like, we just go to church, here's the Bible. You can't do that in this generation. You can't do it because you're at all-out war with the culture. And sometimes we learn from the culture when we dive into it, and we learn that this was a colossal mess up. So one of the things I would encourage young people right now is I would say this, guys, our mental health, depression, our mental health depression statistics, all of these things, anxiety, are through the roof. Whatever culture is doing to try and fix itself isn't working. So don't think that it's going to somehow work for you, that you're the exception. Something is wrong there. Is there something else, someplace else that you can go that can guide you on the right way? And I just think culture is failing us all around. So I feel bad for a lot of you parents. I really do. It's agonizing. I feel sick watching it. I really do. And I know it's tough. Um... So, yeah, that's just a little bit that I have for you and the youth here. I'm sorry. I know it's really tough. We'll do one more question. Talk to me, my friend. How do I accept something as truth, and what did the road look like for me to become an apologist? How do we accept something is true? So there's certain criteria that, that, that need to happen for something to be true. Number one, it needs to be consistent. In other words, um, it can't self-contradict itself, okay? So, so if something is true, I can't make the statement, I am in Paris at 
2 o'clock on Friday, and I am in Montreal at 2 o'clock on Friday and have them both be true. There's a contradiction there, okay? So truth can't contradict something else. Truth excludes other things that are contrary to it, okay? So for something to be true, it can't have a contradiction in it. It also needs to cohere to the world around us. In other words, it needs to make sense with the world that we see it. So if, there, if somebody tries to tell me that what's true is that all people are the color blue, I'm going to say that doesn't make any sense with how I see the world, Okay? So it doesn't even fit into the world around. So we have clues about what truth is by the fact that it, it needs to be, if something is true, then we can't, and, and we find things that are, um, that it's, the statement itself isn't self-contradictory, and we find that it coheres with what's happening in the world, we can know that it's true. Um, it's an indication. I think evidence can be really helpful as well um, in terms of, uh, hist historical evidence and things that we have for especially for Christianity. My road to an apologist was um, um, a much longer one than it probably needed to be because I fought the Lord on it for 10 years. Um, I didn't want it. I didn't want to do it. I really didn't want to stand here. I didn't want the accountability before God. I didn't want to be on YouTube. I didn't want any of that. I want to live my own quiet little life. And so the Lord said, okay, so you can keep running. So I did. I ran for 10 years. And then he made sure everything in my life fell apart until I finally said, fine, fine. I will go to school and I will study apologetics. I already had my master's degree at that point. And I'm like, Lord, do you want me to go back to school? What in the world do I need to go? What, what, what for? What do I want? So I'm going to study apologetics and then I'm going to what? Finish and say, hey, have me come speak. Nobody's going to want me to come speak. It's a waste of my money. I don't need another degree. And it's stupid. There's no outcome here. This was my conversation. But I just knew, I, I just knew that he was like, Alicia, I want you to go. And I went. And I was an apologist with Ravi Zacharias Ministries, when you from Ravi Zacharias Ministries, for eight years. Um, just uh, Lighten is uh, the, if many of you are familiar with what happened with Ravi Zacharias Ministries, they decided they were no longer going to be an active ministry uh, in terms of evangelism and apologetics. And so basically what they decided is that they will um, uh, just be a foundation and giving out money to various causes. And so the U.S. speaking team formed their own organization, which is Lighten, which is where I am now, and that's the booth that's over there. We're the U.S. branch of RZIM. That RZIM now has two employees down from over 200 globally. And, um, and so I went to school, and about three months into me going to school, it was a school that RZIM ran, actually, and they said, Alicia, I want you, we want you to be an intern with us in Boston, and I'm like, oh, I guess you know what you're doing, Lord. <laughs> I guess you know what you're doing. And so I went there, and that was 2013, and here I am today. So I guess he knew what he was doing. People were going to invite me to speak. It wasn't a waste of a degree. I mean, I felt like my argumentations were very good at the time. They were just wrong. We just aren't as good at figuring things out as we think, people. Um, God does know more than us. So I will tell you that I truly never thought that this would be my life. Truly never thought that this would be my life. Not where I was going. Thank you all. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you guys.